0: Grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24, uh, you will find uh, this passage in page 298 of your pew Bibles. And we are at the very end of 2 Samuel. We have arrived. Uh, We started this journey a long, long time ago, I think three years ago, working through the biography of David. Now, I'm going to warn you, this is not the end of our biography of David. This is the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, David's the story doesn't officially end until... Second uh, Kings 2. So uh, I am wanting us to do something for Christmas this year, before Christmas comes. And so uh, what we'll do this evening is we'll, we'll start First Kings 1, and then Lord willing, next week we'll conclude our biography of David. We've looked at all the highs and lows and everywhere in, in between. So 2 Samuel 24, if you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's word, we'll read the chapter. The writer of 2 Samuel, chapter 24, writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, the number of people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? The king's word prevailed against Joab, the commander of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. The of the Jordan began from uh, aror I don't know, e- either, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley towards Gad onto Jazeer. They came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. They went out to the Negev. Of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were five hundred thousand. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly when David arose in the morning, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in the land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in the land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, and there died died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 700,000 men. The angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. I'll stay your hand. The angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah Aaron, the Jebusite. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. The king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David brought, bought the threshing floor and the oxen, the 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea of the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Let's go Lord quickly prayer. As we come to this text, I ask, as always, you would open our entire being, from our hearts and our minds and our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that we would go in obedience to Christ to be transformed by the power of the gospel. This is your work. This is a very simple message and pattern we see here, one that we may take for granted. May we not do that. The message of sin, judgment, and grace. This is truly good news, and may we see Christ in it all. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen, maybe seated. There is one question that dominates this passage. Every commentary you read, every sermon you listen to, everyone who reads this passage, they want to know the answer to, to one question, and it just leaps off the page right from the first line, and that is, don't you think God is overreacting about a census? After all, you and I, we we go through the census process every 10 years. So in uh, eight years, we'll go through it again. It is in the U.S. Constitution that we are to have an accurate census of our nation. To us, a census is not that big of a deal. But for some reason, God loses his cool over something that doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. And I want to suggest that when we approach the text this way, we're doing exactly what the writer wants us to do and that we are completely missing the points. I want us to start here with the senses, verses 1 through 9. You'll notice they're right in verse 1, we are introduced to the main plot of the narrative. And the main plot is David orders a census. And later, you'll find David will, con- will confess that he has sinned greatly. What we do is we say one is related to the other. The senses, therefore, is the sin. But if you read the text carefully, what you'll find is that is not precisely the case. The reason we overreact with God's reaction to the senses is because we assume the great sin of David is the senses itself. It's not. In verse 1, you'll see the anger of the Lord is already kindled against Israel and David. Then he takes the senses. You see how the chronology works there. There is the anger of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord present, that then leads David down a path towards the senses. Now, the census was wrong, and that is clear in the text. However, it is implied here, David, perhaps David, along with the rest of Israel, or as he has led Israel down a path, have committed some unrecognized sin, some unnamed sin that was egregious. And in that sin, perhaps it was in his leadership that got got the rest of the nation on board. We simply do not know. And what we find then is how David responded to that sin. What we would expect David to do is, okay, he made a whoopsie-daisy. So what he'll do is he'll go, he'll say, tell God that he's sorry, promise to never do it again, and then that's the end of the story. After all, this is the way we've sort of been reading David, isn't it? The sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, he, 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 he doesn't realize, or at least he's not ready to recognize the evil that he's done until he's confronted by which he confesses his sin. He repents of it. Grace is extended. Everything is Okay. And we've seen David make some pretty serious uh, mistakes and sins. And the pattern has been he made the mistake once, he walks away, everyone is is better off for it. But that's not what it is that we see here. With the senses, we see that David is aware that what he has done was wrong. He is aware of God's anger towards him. And yet despite that, he adds to disobedience with more disobedience. What we see David doing here with the census is a doubling down. And here is is where a lot of the conversation about the census, though important, isn't most important. Why did David do the census? Well, many will point out exactly what the census is. When we do a census, what we care about is how many citizens are Uh, of the United States. Around the world, primarily here, and and where are they located? That affects our redistricting. So we just went through redistricting at the state and national level, didn't we? Why? Because of the census, right? It affects how many representatives we have at the uh, state and, and national level. Well, back at this time, you're not interested necessarily in counting everybody. You're interested, as the text shows us, in counting one specific group, Strong dudes who could carry a sword and wield it. In fact, you'll notice there uh, in verse 9, Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there was 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, men of Judah, 500,000. Now, I recognize when you add chronicles in this, there's some debate regarding numbers, but if my public school math is correct, that is 1.3 million men who are able to be drafted, if you will. That if this comes to the time of war, David has at his behest at least 1.3 million valiant men. So many point, people point that David's motivation here is political, not theological. And if we remember that this part of 2 Samuel is not chronological, it's, it's thematic. And so some try to put this story back during the absolute rebellion, you know, afterwards, right? And David wants to know, well, how many men do I have left after this civil war? Maybe he's trying to prove that he is, he's the man and he's still mighty. I, I, I don't know because the text just doesn't tell us. What the text does tell us is that everybody knows David is in rebellion. In fact, he is in such rebellion that the dude who loves rebellion, is warning David, you've gone too far in your rebellion. Notice it in verse 1, right? The anger of the Lord is, is kindled and, and says, Go, number Israel, Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army. Now you remember Joab. If there ever was a guy who was in for himself, it was Joab. We'll see this in a few weeks that David on his deathbed tells Solomon, Don't trust Joab. And Joab is family, right? I mean, they, they go to the same Thanksgiving dinner. Right? And not even outlaws where you can sort of explain how weird he is. No, no, this is his actual blood, right? It's a nephew of his, right? Every Christmas, every Easter, every birthday, they are hanging out together. And, and David is a child. Remember, Joab is, is the sort of guy who has murdered people to protect his power. Right? Joab's not a good guy. And so when Joab shows up in the narrative... He says there, verse 3, Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times, as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king shall still see it. But why does my Lord delight in this thing? What does Joab just say? He says, I'm not exactly the most righteous man in the world. And even I can see, David, you are down a pattern of rebellion that is dangerous, not just for you, but for all of Israel. Remember verse 1, that the anger of the Lord was kindled, not just against David, but against all of Israel. Even Joab is able to say, look, the first thing you did was bad enough, but now you're doubling down on it. So right here with this census, we see a word about sin. I'd be lying to you if I knew exactly what it is David had done that led up to the census. And maybe we can discuss his motives. Maybe he was motivated by profit or power or pride. Remember that David is a king who is to act like a shepherd. Here he is acting like a tyrant or a monarch, in it for himself. Regardless, the text is clear that his actions are unacceptable. And everyone knew it was unacceptable. So then what we see is a hint at what sin does to us, what sin is. And one of the things we see here is that sin takes us down a dangerous path by which one action of disobedience and rebellion will often lead to another action of disobedience and rebellion. And along the way, what you get is a mess that is difficult to pick up. Chances are in your life right now, you are witnessing the effects of sin, but because you've been doubling down on it, or someone else you love has been doubling down on it for so long, you can't tell when did this process really start. I don't know how many marriages or, or people who, who look at their family are thinking, how is it that we got to this tangled mess? And what they want is a simple answer. And the answer is, if you go all the way back to 20 years ago, you started down a path of disobedience, and what's happened is you've made a wreck of your life and the lives of the people you claim to love. David is going down that path. The text is showing us just how foolish this sin is, or sin is in general. Nothing David does here makes sense. It shows us how corrosive sin is. We do not, you've heard me say before, privatize sin, but rather it is always communal. The actions I take while either have a negative or positive effect on the people around me. And sin harms. It has consequences. And those consequences are often rarely limited to an individual party, but includes others. <clears throat> So the text wants to see there is nothing good about David's actions here. And we're at a point in the story where we're thinking, we finally made it to the end of 2 Samuel. And where's the good news? David is a terrible guy. Ever since the Bathsheba narrative, he's been a terrible guy. A bad father, a terrible husband, a poor king, a violent man. People are turning against him left and right. And wouldn't you love it if the story ended with better news than this? He's a terrible human being. Well, it just gets worse from here. We move from the senses to consider the curse, verses 10 to 17. One of the interesting things I found about this passage is that on seven different occasions in the Bible, David confesses that he has sinned. He'll say the phrase, I have sins. Here... He says it as well, right? I have sinned. David struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now I want us to compare what is likely the two most uh, infamous accounts of David's sin. Senses on the one hand, the Bathsheba-Uriah event on the other. And you remember that with Bathsheba-Uriah, and Uriah, after Nathan confronted him, David said the words, I have sinned. And we would all agree with that. A man was lying dead at the battlefield because of David's actions. A woman was ripped from her home and her marriage because of David's actions. A child died because of David's actions. A a nation was was struggling with, with scandal and everything else because of a man's actions. He did sin. But you'll notice what language does David use here in verse 10? I have sinned greatly. Greatly. Now again, we don't have all the details that, 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 that we might want. And, and some commentators are, are, are try to try to understand this, and, and what they'll say is, well, with Bathsheba, it was a sudden act of passion. Here, on the other hand, it was a deliberate act of rebellion. And I'm not sure that that bifurcation really works in the end, but you can see that people have been trying to explain that, differ, that, that, that difference. Nevertheless, David finally comes to his senses, but it's too late. His actions have consequences. His actions lead to a curse. His actions lead to the judgment of God. For where there is sin, you can be assured there will be judgment. And so, what God does is He gives them three choices, and they're all given us in verse 13. Uh, it starts out, you can choose between three years of famine. Now, it's actually interesting detail because you remember when we started this section of 2 Samuel, going back to chapter 21, where it's no longer chronological, it's thematic. The first story was regarding the Gibeonites. You remember when they, they hung Saul's sons, right? It's just a terrible passage. It really struggled to, to get through. But you remember what led up to that. It was three years of famine. Three years of famine is very, very serious. So he can choose that. The other option, again, in verse 13, is three months of defeat from his enemies. Again, how we place this chronological is, will determine how we work all that out. Nevertheless, you could do three years of famine, three months of defeat, or three days of pestilence. Now, if you're thinking here like, well, I mean, three days is three days. I ain't that big of a deal. Now, you need to think of it differently. You need to think about the shorter the tenure, the more severe the suffering. So you'll have three years of famine, yes, but the amount of who would suffer from that might be less severe than three months of defeat. Right? And three months of defeat would be worse than the famine. And the three days of pestilence would be far worse than the three months of, of defeat. So don't look at the timeline and think less. Look at the timeline and say more compressed, more severe. Because within three days, you're going to lose all these people that you might in three years. Now I read this story and I, I thought, that's not how my parents rolled, really, you know. Well, I, I, part of me wished mom and dad had given me... Mom and dad believed in corporal punishment to the glory of God, right? I didn't care where, where we were, right? If we were in the middle of uh, a Saveway in Ointon, Kentucky, the greatest grocery store ever invented by, by man, right? Uh, and we were acting up, we got a whooping in Saveway. My dad... Walked into the elementary school, grabbed my brother. I got a lot of stories about my brother, how terrible he was here. So just stick with me. (laughs) Took him into the principal's office. Told the principal, this is a true story. Told the principal that either you stay and watch how to discipline these kids, or you walk out. We act like this never happened. Whooped my brother. Whooped for for you uh, Gen Zers. That means he got spanked. Whooped him right. Dragged him back to his classroom, made him publicly apologize to his teacher. Right? They mom and dad believed corporal punishment, right? He then called my mother and said, There's a good chance I will be in prison. So just keep the kids fed. They will fear me, right? Don't worry about it. They'll be fine. Well, one time mom and dad did give us a choice. They actually did, because uh, they were just sort of exhausted. It seemed like nothing was working, and particularly my brother, okay, because he was the one always in trouble. And, and that is the, the fact. I don't care what he, what he tells you. And so what mom and dad said is either you get a whooping, spanking for you Gen Zers who never experienced this, or you get grounded for a week, right? Now, the way my brother's mind worked was the temporary is better than the more permanent. So, yeah, I don't get a whooping, but, you know, that sting goes away fairly quickly, right? I got things to do. I got I got trouble to get into. I don't want to be grounded. My brother would get bored and he would tear things up and, and it was, I mean, just just miserable to live with. And which and was why he's not married. And so so he said, Alright, I've made my choice. I want to whoop him. So mom and dad said, Good. You're grounded for a week, right? I love that. I just love that. He deserved every every bit of it. On another occasion, my, my brother thought that. Um, you know, a whooping was coming. He, he again, well deserved it. And so he, he thought he could get out of it by punishing himself, okay? You young people, this, this ain't gonna work, okay? You remember Saved by the Bell? You remember Screech on Saved by the Bell? Gen Zers, just Google it. Actually, don't. But, but, but um, Saved by the Bell was really big. We watched it. And, and Screech uh, uh, did this thing that my brother tried. Mom and dad would just let him have it. I mean, how you know better than this and all this sort of stuff. And my brother stands up and he says, Don't worry, I'll save you the trouble. Takes his hand and smacks himself across the face, thinking that would get him out of trouble. Mom and dad laughed. Then they whooped him, right? (laughs) Yeah, right, you know, right? He deserved every bit of that that came to him, and I still don't think he got enough. Nevertheless, like, like, like God is giving options here options here. And and David must choose which one, I mean, which one would you choose? Regardless of what you choose, people will suffer because of him. And that is the reality of sin. When we choose to disobey the Lord, people will sin. So when we choose sin, please save yourself the trouble from saying, I'm doing it out of love. I'm doing it because I care about people. I'm doing it because it's what's best for us. No, you are taking people down a path of destruction and judgment. Here David realizes, under the judgment of God, you will suffer. There will be consequences and people will die because of you. Here we are confronted with the reality of God's judgments right here between verses 15 and 17 70,000 men die in 3 days David chooses the pestilence in fact you see the angel lord is the one who is carrying out the judgments when we speak of god's wrath a subject rarely addressed in american evangelicalism and we do it from a biblical perspective we need to realize that we are to fear god's wrath psalm 7 verse 11 says god is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. The writer of Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you know what the most famous sermon ever preached on American soul is? The most famous sermon ever. There is no uh, second place nearly as popular as this. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you've heard of it. It was preached by a uh, New England uh, pastor, theologian. In fact, the greatest theologian in America ever produced, Jonathan Edwards. The, the, the sermon was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Can, can I? By the way, you won't sell books with a title like that anymore. Let me read to you a paragraph from it. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked, His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else. But to be cast into the fire, he is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in yours. When was the last time you heard something like that in American evangelicalism? Something I've noticed in my study of history. In the ancient world, people understood rightly the judgment of God, but struggled with the mercy of God. Couldn't fathom how a God of wrath could equally be a God of mercy. The modern world is the opposite. We're not, we don't, we take for granted the grace of God. We can't fathom God could ever be angry at me. But the Bible is very clear, where there is sin, there will be judgment. And this is why so many of us don't battle against sin hardly at all. Because we don't take the judgment of God seriously at all. Judgment will fall upon all sin. If not in this life, certainly in the next. And David is confronted with the just justice of God. After all, whatever he has done deserves a response from God and we are to fear this wrath, right? David, as he is given these choices, he knows, I don't like any of these choices. That's the point. The judgment of God is something to be feared, not something to be taken lightly. Well, that leads finally, verses 18 to 25 to the consecration. So we've seen the senses, the curse, and now the consecration. And what we need to see here is the conclusion of this very biblical pattern we've heard a thousand times before. We start with sin, we move the judgment, and then there's the hope of grace. And here we see that hope of grace. In fact, we already got a hint of it earlier, didn't we? If, if we, we can go up and, and see that in verse 14, David makes this decision. Notice his motivation here. David said to Gad, that is the prophet this year, I am in great distress. Yeah, you think? Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But don't let me fall into the hand of man. What an incredible insight David has there, isn't it? To fall in the hands of the Lord, we read in Hebrews, is a fearful thing, a scary thing. But there is the hope, a fool's hope, as Gandalf was saying, the Lord of the Rings. But there is a hope of mercy. The same hand of God that holds us over the pits of hell and our righteousness is as, as, as strong as a spider's web with a rock falling through it is the same God whose hand of mercy holds us by his grace and then gives us time to respond with, with, with repentance and faith. The same God, the one of judgment is the God of, of, of righteousness, the God of salvation. Here, David experiences this. And so judgment comes, and judgment is great. 70,000 people suffer and die there in verse 15. And not just people, but men, presumably among the 1.3 million men who were ready for battle. God comes in and does what the mighty army could not. However, as the angel of the Lord is carrying out the judgment of God, God says enough. Does he deserve more? Yes. Does he, does he deserve any grace from me? No, but enough is enough. And there God spares Israel and their king. So what does David do in response verses 15 to, or 18 rather to the end of the chapter is that David, now you'll notice the timing is weird, right? God stops the plague and then David builds an altar to stop the plague. Did you notice that? It's weird timing. And it's because both are essential to our understanding of grace. Grace is God's exclusive work of mercy towards the sinner. But grace is also the response of the sinner in receiving the grace exclusively upon faith. David comes and builds this altar by faith that in God we will have mercy. And so he goes and hangs out. I'm already past time, forgive me. But he goes and meets with a dude. Uh, Where is his name there in verse 18? Arana the Jebusite. Now that detail is important because you may remember a long time ago in a land far, far away that, that we read that the Jebusites were the occupants of Jerusalem until David occupied the land and made Jerusalem the capital city. Okay? So here, this Arana the Jebusite is a guy who is left over from that. And he is clearly uh, given his allegiance to David. And so much of what you're getting, verses 18 to 25, is a lot of unnecessary detail. David shows up and he's like, oh, what does the king want with me? He goes, I want to buy your threshing floor. You can have it, king. Right? No, I got to buy it. No, no, no. I insist you can have it. You know, easy on the taxes. No, 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 no. I want to buy it. No, you're my king. Right? We get the story back and forth, right? And that is to build the tension. In in ancient Near Eastern uh, storytelling, those unnecessary details are to to build the tension. Finally, David insists on buying the land, buying the threshing floor, by which he will build this altar, offer the sacrifices given to him by Aaron, at which then the mercy of God is made clear, and that that he receives the sacrifice of of propitiation that is appeasing the wrath of God, and thanksgiving, right? And God withholds the judgment. Now, why is this detail so important? Because this is a picture of grace. This is a picture of mercy. You see, the most important part of this entire chapter is not the senses. It's the cross. The writer could have said, David went and bought some land in Jerusalem, but instead... He wants the reader to know where in Jerusalem he bought lands. That detail is important. He bought the threshing floor of this Jv site. This site predates David. This precise site predates Israel. The first time we see this site is whenever Melchizedek, king of Salem comes to visit with Abraham. The second time we see this sight is in Genesis chapter 22. You remember the story? When God told Abraham to take his son, his only begotten son, to Mount Moriah, there he was to offer his son, his only begotten son, to him. You remember the story, right? You know, Isaac is carrying the, the, the sticks and he's got the matches and, and everything else, and he's, he's noticing we're going to go make this sacrifice, but. Where's the lamb? You remember the question? Daddy, where's the lamb? You remember what Abraham said? The Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide the lamb. You get to end the story. David's about to, 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 to slay his son. And, and the, the angel of the Lord that we just met in this story, he intervenes and says no. And what does Abraham discover in the thicket? A ram. Now you remember the point of the story was God will provide the lamb. But in the story, God provided A ram. And there, in the place of his son, God Abraham offered that ram, but there's no lamb provided. It was on that site that David purchases the threshing floor to build an altar that will be the foundation and the site of where Solomon will build the temple. You see how God first provided the lamb? In two, King, 2 Chronicles rather, 3, chapter 1, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. We are to see, as the text wants us to see, where God's grace was manifested. What God said to Abraham was, Not your son I will take, but mine. To David, he says, he says, build this altar here, for this will be the threshing floor by which grace will be made evident among my people, despite their de- deserving of judgment. And then the day will come when upon that threshing floor in the temple comes Christ, by which John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God that God has provided will take away the sins of the world. Why? Because he comes not with a senses, but with a cross. And the judgment of God is satisfied in the sacrifice of the Son. This, in a nutshell, is the gospel. Judgment deserving, that we deserve, preserved for us, is laid upon Him, the Lamb of God, so that we might receive the mercy of God. Well, as we approach the conclusion of David's biography... We, we said earlier we could look at two, two of David's greatest sins were no doubt Bathsheba and, and Uriah and that whole story. And here are the senses. And in both accounts, what we see is really the same pattern that we've been talking about. Sin, judgment, salvation. Both stories. I trust you're familiar with them so we won't rehash them. But in both stories, what we see is God's grace made evident despite the wickedness of man. Think about it with the Bathsheba narrative. From that story came the tearing apart of a family, the death of a loving father and a faithful soldier. And still, God provided for his people an heir to the throne. It's mercy. Here we see that From the senses and the sin that preceded it comes the death of 70,000 innocent Israelites. Yet despite that judgment comes the grace of God. The true foundation of the temple wasn't in stone. It was in the Lamb's blood. Even in judgment, God remembers mercy. Isn't that what Habakkuk tells us? I'll tell you what I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, writing to a mix of Jew and Gentile congregation, he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. When you see a law, we're more tempted to break that law. But where sin increased, can you finish it with me? Grace abounded all the more. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the point of this passage, not about a census, it's about a cross. Wherever you are, right here, right now, I don't know your story. Maybe you're one who's thinking, my sin has abounded far too much. I have crossed that line far too many times. I have lived in a pattern of rebellion that is unacceptable, and I just might as well surrender to the judgment of God. Or maybe you're here and and you, you mock the idea of God's judgments. Can I just encourage you today that the hope we have in Jesus, Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, where our sin may abound, God's grace abounds far more. You see, Abraham needed a lamb, and in comes David, who needed a lamb, but what he needed more was a Savior. And when Christ comes, he didn't need a temple, he was the temple. He was the lamb. And all we need here right now is the blood of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, savior of our souls, the son of David, the king. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.